Merry Christmas. It's good to see you all and looking better than usual. Decked all out in red and love it. What a gift it is to be able to celebrate Christmas as the gathered church on the Lord's Day. We're here to rejoice together in the fulfillment of centuries of promises. The coming of the long-expected Messiah, the birth of the second person of the Godhead, the highest expression of the love of God, the Savior and saving of the world. And the, and the fact that the one born on Christmas Day will come again to set all things right. There are a few things There are a few things that I know of anyway, written by men that better capture the glory of these things than the hymn we just sang, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Before I pray, I want to give you just a little bit of background on the hymn and then explain why uh, I'm preaching a sermon, as Matt said, on the themes of the song. Come Thou Long Expected Jesus was written by Charles Wesley in 1744. It's a long time ago. Charles Wesley was an Englishman who lived from 1707 to 1788. He was converted to faith in Jesus at 31 years old. He became a leader within the Methodist movement founded by his brother John out of the Anglican Church. Both he and his brother were well known for their evangelistic preaching and earnest desire for Christians to live in holiness. Charles wrote more than 6,000 hymns, more than 6,500, actually. Can you do the math on that? I I don't know. Uh, I didn't. So 1707 to 1788 means he was 81 years old. Probably didn't start writing, I'm imagining, until he was at least, you know, 10 or 11 or something. No, actually, he had to, at his conversion, so at 31, so... 50 years, do the math, 6,500 hymns, 31 years. That's remarkable. Uh, Among his other hymns that you've heard of are And Can It Be, Christ the Lord is Risen Today, and Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Come Thou Long Expected Jesus was first published in a collection of hymns that he wrote called Hymns for the Nativity of Our Lord. Now, interestingly, for many years, it went mostly unnoticed. It, it sort of uh, floated around in hymn, what, what? hymn lands, in, 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 I don't even know what that means. But, it, but, but basically, no one really had heard of it for, for many years. But two things happened in particular that made it one of the most well-known and beloved hymns in the world. First, in 1830, 86 years after it was first written, it finally found music that stuck. And so people would sing it with different uh, different tunes over the years, and none of them quite did it justice. And then in 1830, if you have a hymnal, you can look and see that uh, I can't even pronounce the name of the tune, but it finally got a, a tune in 1830. And the second was in 1855, Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon based on this hymn. I didn't read it, so I'm not copying it this morning, but. But he preached a sermon based on this hymn, and it caused it to spread to the point where it's in basically every hymnal you'll find now, and has been for quite some time. So I hope you find some of that 
Interesting. And as Matt said, by the way, too, it originally had two verses, the ones we just sang, and and we're going to sing after this sermon again, uh, this song, but with all four verses. I don't even know when the other two came in, but but they're here now. Uh, but I hope you find all that interesting, but that's not why I'm preaching on it. This sermon is tied to the text of this hymn for one main reason. It captures unbelievably well many of the glories of Christmas. And for that reason, we'll look a bit closer at a number of the lines from the hymn alongside the biblical texts from which they came. Lord willing, when we sing it together again after this, we'll be able to do so with a deeper and more profound sense of awe and wonder and gratitude and longing. My aim is to come at the Christmas story through this hymn in a fun and fresh and hopefully memorable way to help us all to see the glory of Christmas in greater detail and measure so that we might respond today and forever in greater gladness and worship and obedience. And so with that, let's pray and then we're going to consider really quickly 12 glorious biblical truths proclaimed in this familiar Christmas hymn. God, thank you for for your word. Thank you that it is the standard for all things. No hymn is, no creed is. Your word and your word alone is. But thank you that you have gifted your people over the millennia to articulate the truths of your word in helpful ways. And sometimes in propositional truths and systematic theologies and formal theological texts, and sometimes in poetry and in song, we're thankful that you've strengthened your church so much through songs like this. You both teach us and instruct us through it, and also correct us and reorient us through it. I pray that you would do both this morning, that you would give us a means by which to express the work you've already done in us as we sing this, but also recalibrate us to make sure what really stirs our heart, what really fills us with joy, what really drives us in this world are the things that ought to. We're thankful for your son, Jesus, that this is the day in which we celebrate his birth, his incarnation. I pray that we would do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So at Christmas, we are celebrating one of the three most significant events in human history. Kids, what are the other two? If Christmas is one, what are the other two? Creation and the resurrection. As I often try to do when I stand in this pulpit, mostly because for so many years I would hear and even sing these things, and it would it would just I would it would I would miss it. I I used to say I I don't think I ever heard the gospel until I was in college, but I know I did because I sang these songs without knowing I was singing these songs and having no ears to hear the gospel in them. But but I think because of that when I When I stand up here often, I want to encourage you to slow down, even just for a few seconds, and consider what I just said. The claim that God became man, that the divine nature took on a human nature, and that this was done in love to rescue the world from sin and death, it's not a normal thing to say. It's not a normal claim. I hope... I hope I say this enough that you're familiar with me talking like this, but not so much that you get tired of hearing it, and that just becomes a normal claim. 
When we hear things like this, we're meant to stand in awe. I hope to help you to see that this morning. This is an extraordinary claim. It's an extraordinary set of claims. If it isn't truly true, if Christmas isn't truly true, we're fools for having anything to do with it, even, even simply in the commercial, on the commercial level, so common to so many. But if it is truly true, and it is, then it's worth celebrating in the highest. I read even just this week in a I'm reading a book, and in it, he said it, the author said it even better than I did. Just listen to this. If you don't hear anything else on Christmas, hear, hear this. Christianity is either everything or it is nothing. Either the world's stupidest lie or the world's ultimate truth. If Jesus is not literally everything to you, he is literally nothing at all. That's, that's powerful. You're most likely here because you've joined millions upon millions in believing that it is truly true. You're here because you know that it is worth celebrating in the highest. You're here as one manner of doing so, of celebrating these things. Again, we're thankful for that. But at the same time, however, you're probably not only here to celebrate the glories of Christmas. Hopefully, you, like me, are here for help to celebrate the glories of Christmas, to see them a little bit more clearly, a little bit more fully. To have a little bit more help and having Jesus is literally everything to you. And it is my sincere hope that you'll find that this morning as well, both the opportunity to celebrate and help in celebrating. In particular, and once again, let's look at a few lines from Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Beginning with that one, (laughs) come thou long expected Jesus. This is at the same time a plea for the Messiah to come. They're an acknowledgement that in Scripture that was the case for many, many years. And for us, a plea for him to return. It is simultaneously the cry of the world from the garden promise in Genesis 3 until the incarnation and a cry of every Christian sense. Countless souls longed for the day when the Messiah would come, even as countless souls now long for him to come again. Passages like Micah 5.2, we've heard it many times in the last few weeks, promised the coming of the Christ, the Messiah. Likewise, passages like Acts 1, 9-11, promise that he will return. And passages like Luke 2, 25-32, Describe the kind of longing that is meant to mark the people of God. I love this passage. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting on the consolation of Israel. Longing for the Messiah to come. Longing for the Christ that had been promised for centuries to to come. And it had been revealed to him from the Holy Spirit, what a gift this was, to not, that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Christ. He, he would get to, he knew it. And he came in the Spirit to the temple. And when the parents brought, that is Jesus' parents, brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he, that is Simeon, took up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. What a, what a remarkable picture. 
of the longing that we're meant to have. The simple yet profound reality is that to know the nature of Jesus. Kids, you know the nature of some of the presents you wanted and maybe already got this morning. But to know the nature of Jesus, what he accomplished in his coming to earth, in his suffering, his death, and his resurrection, in his everlasting promises, to know those things, to know the nature of Christmas is to long for Christ and long that he would come again. May this line, this title of this song, spur us on in longing to be with Jesus, Grace. We glorify God the most in Christmas when it produces in us and is an expression from us of our longing for him and for him to return. The next one is born to set thy people free and also born thy people to deliver. Given where we've been in John's gospel recently, it's hard not to think of these lines as simple echoes of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Likewise, in Romans 5, Paul wrote, For God shows his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And in Galatians 5, he declared for freedom, Christ has set us free. Ultimately, Jesus came to glorify the Father in everything that he did. But passages like the ones that I just read, tell us that Jesus would do so in large measure by dying on the cross to free sinners. He was born to glorify God by setting all that the Father gave him free from sin and death and to deliver us from the condemnation that we were under. Grace, when we sing these lines again in just a few minutes, let us do so with a greater sense of gratitude and wonder that we get to glorify God. We get to participate in Jesus' glorifying of the Father in trusting that he was born to die in our place and risen from the dead for us. Third, from our sins and fears, release us. Sins and fears, release us. Those two are perfectly and inseparably linked. Do you want to be released from your sins? And do you want to be released from your fears? They have to go together. Apart from the release of sin, you should be filled with fear. Apart from The release from sin, while we were still under under divine condemnation, fear is right. If in our sin we do not have the promises of God to be working for our good, bad things are bad and good things are only temporary before we get ultimate, ultimate justice in hell. Grace, we're fools not to be afraid of the wrath of God, which remains on us until we are released from our sins. However, to be set free from sin and to truly understand all that that means is to be freed from all fear. What is there to fear when God's when God is for us? What is there to fear when the promises of God in 1 Peter 1 are for us, for an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading and kept in heaven for you who are by God's power being guarded through faith? for a salvation that is to be revealed in the last time. What is there to fear when we know that all things are working together for our good? What is there to fear when death is gain? The coming of Jesus is a promise that nothing can cause true harm to anyone who is trusting in him, having been forgiven of our sins. That is why Jesus himself could say, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. 
Not as this world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Fourth, let our let us find our rest in thee. Just as being released from fear follows from being released from sin, so too does finding genuine, true, transcendent rest. Are you tired? Are you overwhelmed? Are you stressed? Are you burdened? Are you heavy laden? Let us find our rest in thee. So too does finding genuine, true, transcendent, eternal rest follow on the heels of those two things. To be freed from sin is to be freed from fear, and to be freed from fear is to be brought into a place of rest. That is what Jesus meant in Matthew 11 when he said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, for I will give you rest. In a season more known for chaos, how many of you feel chaos and stress and running around and and in a season more known for stress and chaos may god be pleased to remind us from this simple line and the simple song of his many promises in his word to make us a people of rest and peace in jesus now and forever grace there is a kind of rest available to you right now in jesus if you will trust in him because he came to earth to bring it. And Christmas is a celebration of that. Fifth, Israel's strength and consolation. We just read the verse that that line comes from, Luke 2.25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. The key to this great truth is that just because we are free from sin and fear, and just because there is a rest that Christ has for us does not mean that hard things won't come our way. You get that? You can be released from your sins. You can be released from fear. You can find a, a rest in Christ Jesus, but that does not mean, those things do not mean that hard things won't come our way. Indeed, Jesus promised that they would. So how then do you walk in peace? When hardship comes, how, how, do, how does your peace remain when your circumstances are hard? This line highlights what the Bible says over and over. Those who belong to Jesus always have God's strength and comfort, especially in t- times of trial. It is because Jesus is the strength and consolation of all of God's people that Paul could write, the peace of God which surpasses understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It doesn't make sense. It's beyond understanding that we can be at peace when severe trial hits. And thus, Jesus, during those times, is our strength and consolation. And Christmas is the good news that he is for all who believe. Again, let that sink in and wash over you if you're in a hard season. Or Store it up now for when you are, because you will be at some point. If you're lonely or sick or frustrated, remember and sing with great joy of Israel's Christmas-born strength and consolation. Number six, hope of all the earth thou art. Can you think of the last time you found yourself in a really difficult spot? Some of you are in one right now. But think of it, if, if you're not right now, think of the last time you found yourself in a really difficult spot, one that had significant consequences for you, and you weren't sure how it was going to turn out. 
what you wanted in that moment, whether you could articulate it or not, or understood it or not, was hope. Hope that somehow you would find a way out unscathed. Hope for some kind of rescue to trust in. Hope for some promised solution to provide an escape. Biblically, when hope pertains to the promises of Jesus, there's no uncertainty about it. When our hope is tied to a specific promise of God, it is as certain to happen as if it had already happened. Hope relates to future things, to the desire of something not yet. But Christian hope will come to pass just as certainly as the things happening right now for you. That's awesome. We find this in passages like Matthew 12, which is a quote from Isaiah 42. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom I am, my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. What a sweet line it is then, Grace Church, for all who recognize Jesus as the only but certain source of hope. Hope for deliverance from sin and death, and more remarkably still, hope for everlasting fellowship with God. Let us sing in just a minute with confidence and clarity that Christmas is the good news for realized hope, perfect hope for all the worlds. Number seven, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Because of all the great truths we've already considered, Jesus really is the greatest treasure of all. And for those with eyes to see, he is the greatest desire and the deepest longing of our hearts. To know and be known by Jesus is to be filled with fullness of joy. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And this fullness of joy and everlasting pleasure is found in Jesus. And so in John 15, 11, Jesus said, pay attention to this. These things I have spoken to you, this is so awesome, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Do you, do you see this, Grace? The joy that is offered to us at Christmas is the full joy of Jesus. Some of you are joyful people, and I would love to have some of your joy. But if I'm going to get all of somebody's joy, it's going to be that of Jesus, who is full of joy. That's the promise of Christmas. The greatest lie Satan has ever perpetuated is that joy, the joy of Jesus can be found outside of Jesus. For that reason, the world is filled with people, including you and me, since Adam and Eve, who seek alternative sources of real joy and real satisfaction. Jesus offers everything, but he requires everything as well. Again, because of that, there has always been a thriving market. You get emails, you get texts, you see billboards. There's always been a thriving market of counterfeit goods, promising the same satisfaction of Jesus without all the requirements of Jesus. At a much lower price, but Christmas is the coming of the only true, full, and lasting satisfaction. And the child of Christmas, therefore, is the dear desire of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. The greatest longing of every heart that is spiritually alive and the everlasting joy for all who believe. So when we sing lines like these, then, may they serve well 
May they serve us well as both a desire check, test. When you sing this, don't just sing it as if it's true. Make sure it's true. Test your greatest desire. What is it? Kids, what are you most excited about in this world? Probably something similar to what your parents are. So parents, when you see your kids chasing after something, think, huh, I wonder where that came from. But you let these lines in these songs, and more importantly, these words from God's Word, let them serve both as a desire check, what is our greatest desire at longing, and then a desire recalibration, reminding us to turn our eyes to Jesus alone. Number eight, born a child and yet a king. Have you ever considered how strange it is that God chose to send the Savior of the world into the world as a baby? Have you ever thought about how strange that is? I don't, again, maybe I do this too much. I always think, what would I do? What would, like if it were my job to save the world, what form would that come in? It wouldn't be a baby in a manger. I know that. I, I don't know what it would be, but it wouldn't be this. The very one who, <laughs> the very one who is with God eternally, through whom the world was made and is sustained right now, the one to whom all things belong, the one with all authority over every earthly and heavenly being set that aside in a sense to be born of a virgin in a lowly manger. That's weird stuff, man. That's weird. But as staggering as it is, that has always been God's way. Listen, listen to Colossians 1. Just listen to this. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what was weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what was low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Philippians 2 helps us to see that there is no greater example of this than Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has, do you already know, highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, the name that he has had for all of eternity. That's awesome. One remarkable aspect of the glory of Jesus is that his excellencies are diverse. Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon on this. You should read it. It's better than mine. To the point that many seem contradictory. Grace, he is a lion and a lamb. He is gentle and lowly and able to silence and slaughter every enemy. In him is infinite justice and infinite grace. He is majesty and meekness. He is perfectly obedient and perfectly sovereign. He was born a child and yet a king. Sing, Grace. Sing with greater breadth of glories. Sing with greater brokenness and comfort. You can have both when you come before Jesus. Sing with greater brokenness and comfort, greater humility and confidence, greater weight and freedom, greater sorrow and rejoicing, greater contentment and greater longing, and with greater freedom and obedience. Number nine, born to reign in us forever. And another, now thy gracious kingdom bring. And another, rule in all our hearts alone. Jesus is not merely a king, but he is the king, the eternal king, the eternally gracious king, 
the eternally gracious king of you and me. In the familiar passage in Matthew 28, we read, And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus is the king who has all authority. Even clearer still, these lines in Come Thou Long Expected Jesus celebrate the eternally gracious King Jesus. You see it in passages like 1 Timothy 6, the blessed and only sovereign. Jesus is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality. This kind of power is good news in Jesus alone, since he alone possesses glory as the only Son from the Father, even as he alone is full of grace and truth. He is the King with all authority, but he is also all good and all gracious and all loving. Limitless power is a terror unless it is paired with a holy and merciful nature like Jesus. And so we celebrate and we sing of the birth of this truth, that Jesus is the eternal gracious King. And we celebrate and sing this prayer that we, along with the whole world, would bow gladly our knee before him. Number 10, by thine own eternal spirit. As as we just saw in the previous line, previous lines, every good thing about Jesus is without expiration. Settle on that for a minute. You can imagine some great time of joy you've experienced in your life, but what's something that you've found to be true always in those great times of joy? The end. You're not still in it right now, probably, or you're maybe in a new one right now that will end at some point soon. But all the glories of Jesus that this song highlights, and more importantly, all the glories of Jesus that the Word of God highlights are everlasting. They have no end. They will never end. We sing about them because they are true. And more importantly, we don't sing songs about things that are true of your happiness because they end, but we sing about them because they are true, and more importantly, because they are eternally true. Indeed, Jesus is the one who was and is, or who is and was and who is to come. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and therefore to him will be glory and dominion forever and ever. We praise Jesus and sing lines, this line, these lines in the song that he was born on Christmas, and that he will come again because his love and kindness and salvation and glory are everlasting. 11, by thine all-sufficient merit. Two more lines. This one celebrates the fact that Jesus' merit, his worth, his glory, his majesty are entirely sufficient to accomplish all that is assigned to him by the Father. Romans 6.10, for the death he died, To sin, he died once for all. Not like the blood of bulls and goats that needed to be offered over and over and over and over and would continually have needed to be offered over and over and over. Jesus died once for all. Hebrews says it this way, But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus is the only man who has ever lived who possessed intrinsic merit. All other merit is borrowed. It is by Jesus' all-sufficient merit that we are made right with God. And it is at Christmas that we celebrate the birth of the all-sufficient one. 
this line and this song captures that simply and beautifully. So we're about to sing it. We're almost there. Get ready. I hope you're getting charged up here, you know. Number 12, lastly, raise us to the glorious throne. To me, this is the most staggering of all. In light of everything we've already covered, it should be no surprise. Take the first 11. In light of all of those things, it should be no surprise to find at the end of all things that that the end of all things includes us coming before the throne of Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth to bow down before him and praise him as king, to honor him forever and submit to him fully as king. That shouldn't be any surprise. That makes sense. It's the only thing that makes sense. And it is true that that will happen, that we will acknowledge him as the rightful king. But, Grace, this is shocking. It is shocking to learn that we will not only bow before him, but we will also reign with him. This is this final line of this great hymn acknowledges and calls us to sing of both. We will be raised to Jesus' throne to bow before him and to reign with him. 2 Timothy 2, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. And if we endure, we will reign, also reign with him. Revelation 3.21, the one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne. This is almost too much to imagine, but it's true. Mankind was create, created to reign with God, exercising dominion over the creation of God in the first garden. But rather than delight in that privilege, however, Mankind wanted to rule even God, not with God, but rule God. In the new heavens and new earth, we will, brought to a, we will be brought to a new and eternal garden to reign as we were made to, to do. What an awesome thing that will be. What an awesome thing it is that Christmas marks the birth of the one who won all of this for us. Here's my conclusion. We'll sing these two verses again along with two additional ones that have been added since Wesley penned the original. And the new verses will sing of even more glories. Pay attention to those. See if you can make a list of Christmas as we consider the heavenly hosts proclaiming the birth of Jesus, Jesus tasting our sadness, and the temporary setting aside of infinite riches that Jesus chose at Christmas. May God drive these truths down deep in us. May they ring in our heads for the rest of today. And for the rest of the year, even as they'll ring in our heads and hearts for the rest of eternity in heaven. And may we go forth now to celebrate and declare the hope and joy of the earth with even greater clarity and zeal and courage until the final Christmas comes upon us. And so we say, come again, thou long-expected Jesus.